Uh, we'll get started a minute or so early, just to give our speaker more time, and the, so there may be more people that roll in. Can everybody hear me out there? Good. My name's Cheryl Bradley. I'm the moderator for today's session. I want to welcome you all to the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Please turn off those devices in your pockets or your purses so that we don't have any interruptions. Uh, we don't want interruptions because the, uh, the presentation is recorded and so is the question and answer period. So background noise, please limit that. Uh, these uh, recordings will be available on the SACPAW website. And Shaw TV um, broadcasts several times a day the presentation and excerpts from the PowerPoint. So if you want to go back and look a little more closely, there's lots of opportunities for doing that. The cost for today's lunch is $11. Please put it in the, your basket at the table and designate someone at the table to do the math to be sure the number of people times $11 adds up. Uh, the format of today's meeting is uh, 25 to 30 minutes for the presentation, a half hour for lunch, and then a question period finishing at 1.30. So the topic today is, can private land conservation maintain biodiversity and healthy watersheds in Alberta's foothills? A question. Our speaker is Justin Thompson. Uh, Justin is executive director of the Southern Alberta Land Trust Society. He spent much of his childhood in the foothills of Southern Alberta and that influenced his decision to pursue a Bachelor of Science in Biology, as well as a Master's in Public Administration, with an eye to influencing a change in environmental practices. So it's in your blood, I guess, Justin. Justin got to know salts when he was looking for options to preserve wildlife habitat and watersheds on his own land, and ended up with his family doing a conservation easement with the Southern Alberta Land Trust Society. And that evolved into him eventually getting the job as executive director of SALTS and working full time on private land conservation. Prior to, work, to joining SALTS, Justin had a career in wildlife conservation, renewable energy development, and his own energy efficient home building business. So all with some environmental theme to them. He continues to run a small cow calf operation in partnership with a local rancher near the Porcupine Hills. And all of this background is really helpful in his role as uh, working for conservation easements on private lands in the foothills. I've had the opportunity to work with Justin for about four or five years now, and I'm just really impressed by his strategic thinking and his compassion 
for the work he does. So please join me in welcoming Justin. Well, thank you, Cheryl. I, uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to be here today, and I, I see lots of familiar faces in the crowd, and there's actually a number of people here from organizations that uh, SALTS has the opportunity to partner with um, on various projects. So happy to see you here, and, and thanks for being here today. So I, I've changed the title of my uh, presentation a little bit here today, and as you can see, I've got here, Why Alberta Needs Private Land Conservation and Lots of It. Now that, that may sound like a somewhat self-serving title, uh, but my hope is that by the end of my presentation here today that you'll agree with me that um, we really do need to step up our efforts around private land conservation, not just for the people living out in those uh, rural areas, but also for all of us living in urban areas not too far away. So just very quickly, I'll highlight uh, who SALTS is, who our organization is and what we do. I want to talk about land use in southwestern Alberta, the past, the present, and talk a bit about the future. I want to talk about why parks are really good, but why they're not good enough all by themselves. I'm going to highlight the immense ecological value of some of our private lands in southwestern Alberta. Uh, talk about why they're specifically important to Lethbridge. And there's a recent project we've been working on uh, that shows just how critical uh, some of this work going on west of Lethbridge is for the, the city itself. And then try and uh, summarize by asking uh, all of you to maybe uh, participate in this process a little bit. So this is just to give you a bit of a sense of SALT. This is my, my board of directors, some of my board and my staff. And as you can see, we, we are an organization that uh, has um, a diversity of people, that we're, but we're largely uh, made up of people who are uh, ranchers and who work on the land. SALT was started 20 years ago, actually. This is our 20th anniversary. And it was started by landowners in actually the Pincher Creek area and the Longview area. And it was, it was started because ranchers wanted a conservation organization and a land trust who they felt understood their management of the land. And because they believed that ultimately those people who are on the land can be the best stewards of the land. So we are somewhat unique in our community grounded focus. To date we have agreements with over 40 different landowners from west of Calgary all the way down to the Waterton border. And those agreements protect approximately 20,000 acres. Um, and that's, that sounds like a big number, and it's a number that I'm very proud of for SALTS, but there's so much more to be done. Uh, there's so much more important private land to be protected. And we don't just focus on preserving ecologically valuable land, but one of our goals is to see if we can help people continue to work on the land. So continue to support ranching, and I'll talk more about why we think that's important. We use a voluntary tool called a conservation easement, and I won't go into too much detail. If, if people want more information, I can tell you. Um, but landowners choose to work with us for a number of different reasons, but primarily because they want to see their land when they sell it or when they transfer that land to stay protected in perpetuity. We are able to provide some financial incentives to those landowners, but at the end of the day, landowners that decide to work with us are not getting as much as if they just sold their land. They're doing this because they want to see their land protected, and we try and provide some benefit for them, but at the end of the day, they're making a decision to protect their land. The big question is, what are we trying to protect the land from? So my grandmother was born in Pincher Creek in 1914. And at that time, the city of Calgary was roughly 50,000 people. The city of Lethbridge, I think, was roughly 10,000 people in 1914. My dad was born in Pincher Creek in 1944. And at that time, the city of Calgary was roughly 100,000 people. And Lethbridge had grown to a whopping 15,000 people in 1944. 
what's happened, as you know, is we've seen a lot of growth since then. So th this is a map that shows the human footprint on the landscape in 1960. So not when my dad was born, but a little bit afterwards. And it, it, doesn't, it doesn't show agricultural footprint, it just shows roads, houses, sort of uh, towns and those sorts of things, with the yellow and orange areas being higher density of human footprint, the darker green being lower area of human footprint. If we move forward from 1960 to 2010, what you see is that human footprint has grown dramatically. And so my grandmother, if she'd lived to 104, she only lived to 94, but if she'd lived to 104 right now, in her lifetime, she would have seen over a million people out of the city of Calgary in one lifetime. Lethbridge is now over 100,000 people. And so I think we forget just how much growth we've seen in southern Alberta over the last 100 years. The scary thing is that this organization, Alice's, who does this landscape modeling, took what's been happening over the last 100 years and projected forward. So if we take the growth that's happened and just continue that same rate of growth for the next 50 years, what that footprint looks like is something like this, where Calgary and Okadokes and Cochrane and Airdrie all merge into one massive city. Uh, areas around Pincher Creek and other areas down Highway 2 Corridor become more developed. This is not that dissimilar to Denver, Colorado, which has grown, I think, to about 4 million people. And the footprint of that city is enormous now. So that's potentially the future we're looking at. And one of the goals of SALTS is to be proactive to see if we can be strategic about how that growth occurs and support conservation of these areas. So let's go back to the 2010 picture because that gives me a lot less anxiety. There's still too much orange on there for my liking, but uh, it's less scary than 20, 2060. One of our goals, we know that development's not going to stop. The question is, can we identify some of those key pockets of those green areas that have the highest value for wildlife habitat, for watershed health, for those ecosystem services we all rely on, and be strategic about protecting those areas. So I've drawn this arbitrary green line to say, you know, let's try and protect in those areas. SALTS works outside of those areas as well. But if you look at where our easements are to date, here's an example of some of where our easements are. So we've got a number of easements all the way up and down the foothills in these areas that are currently still relatively intact. I'll keep going here, sorry, I don't know when my dots stop. There we go. One of the concerns is when we develop private land, it often gets converted into a land use, like houses, gravel pits, roads, that have very diminished ecological value. And once that conversion has taken place, it's often permanent. So some industrial development, like potentially forestry or oil and gas, it can have impacts as well, and that's a whole different discussion. But in some cases, those impacts over time can actually come back. It depends on how it's done, it has to be done properly. But the point is, is that a lot of the conversion of our private lands is a permanent conversion, as opposed to other uses where there may be use of the landscape and then the landscape reverts to something close to natural again, or something that has those ecosystem services. And so, you know, we often talk about the tragedy of the commons, where you've got a, a public land resource that no one person is responsible for, and as a result, everybody overuses it and it gets damaged. I think in Alberta, we also have a, a tragedy of private pro property rights. And don't get me wrong, I'm not against private property rights, but when it comes to preserving ecological function and preserving these important areas, there's a lot of things working against private property rights or against us in terms of conservation. You could argue in Alberta that we actually have both, where our, our public lands are being used for a lot of different things uh, and our private lands are also being fragmented. 
Um, there is some good work being done on public land conservation right now, which is good in planning, so that's encouraging. Um, but I want to talk about private land more. So, on the eastern slopes, the land value of property now is not agricultural. Someone who wants to farm or ranch has to buy land that is worth two, three, four, five times what the ag value is because it's driven by recreational value. It's driven by people who want to buy land to have a house and, and put a house on it. I don't fault them for that by any means. It's just that's what's driving the conversion of land. So every time there's a transfer ownership, it's often a conversion away from agriculture into some other land use. The other factor is every time there's a, con a transfer ownership, the parcels go from bigger, but people don't want to own a huge ranch. They want to own a quarter section for their house. And so you go from a big ranch with one house and one road on it to now 10 parcels with 10 roads and 10 houses. And so what happens over time is there's this, there's this transfer and this conversion of our land base to a smaller, more fragmented land base. And I have a personal story. Our property west of Lundbrek, um, there was a new MD road that went across the property in the 1980s. And I was a kid back then. I didn't know the circumstances. It went to a neighbor's house. But it cut right through our land through Native Prairie. And now that road is the bane of my existence. It is a vector for blueweed, for toad flax, now downy brome, and that spreads onto my property. And so every single road you add, every single disturbance you add, has this impact beyond that disturbance. And so when we take this landscape and start to carve it up, that impact just spreads and, and, and impacts the landscape. So I know there's also concerns about ranching and cattle. There are definitely, you know, potentially impacts from grazing cattle, um, but if it's done well, I actually think it's the most compatible land use for our eastern slopes. And is it better than the alternative? I would argue without a doubt, yes. For ranches to remain viable, they have to stay in big par bigger parcels. And so right there, you're keeping the land in bigger parcels. This landscape evolved with grazing. If you take grazing off this landscape, we actually can see a decrease in biodiversity and a decrease in carbon storage. So grazing can actually be good for the landscape if it's done properly. And of course, a well-managed ranching landscape can support a host of critters and also support uh, our watershed health. So, I've talked about some of the threats to this landscape, but often when I, I tell people what I do, they're like, well, why do we need private land conservation? We have parks. We have provincial parks, we have national parks. You know, why do we need private land conservation? The issue is that many of our ecoregions and many of our habitats aren't even represented on public land. They're only on private land. A lot of our highest areas of biodiversity are on private land and not on public land. Species at risk are on private land in some, some cases. Critical wildlife corridors and riparian areas are often on private land. So if we don't do private land conservation, we're missing a huge piece of the conservation puzzle. So here is the ecoregions of, of southwestern Alberta. And so you see we go from the, the alpine to the montane to the foothills fescue to the mixed grass prairie in a very, very short period, very, very, very short area. If you look at the land ownership, and I'm sorry this map is a bit hard to interpret, basically you have parks, public land, and, then, and grazing leases in orange. What you see is that most of our public land is in the mountains and the montane. So you're missing all those other ecoregions in your park. So you've missed all that critical part of our, our habitat. If you look at the remaining foothills grasslands west of Highway 2, about 70% of them are on private land. So if you want to conserve grasslands, foothills grasslands anyway, you have to be conserving private land. And that biodiversity that you see, so this is biodiversity intactness by the Alberta Biodiversity Monitoring Institute, you can see corresponds with those grasslands on private land. 
And the interesting thing is that that biodiversity in the grasslands is actually a different type of biodiversity than we have in our forests and our mountains. And so you can't just protect one or the other. We actually, we, we have to protect both. So I want to give you a, a specific example here. Here we are looking at southwest Alberta. You see Lethbridge there. You see Waterton Park in pink down in the corner. Um, the new Castle Park, uh, Highway 22, Highway 3. All those light green areas are conservation easements. In, on this map, probably about uh, 10 to 15,000 acres are salts, and the rest are the Nature Conservancy of Canada, probably in the 60, 70, 80,000 acres of protected lands. So what are, these, what are these private lands doing? So you can see most of our parks are rock, right? They're mostly mountains. So we're protecting habitat that doesn't exist in the park. So if you're an elk or a grizzly bear, you don't want to just hang out in the mountains. You want to be in the foothills. You need some grass. Your life cycle depends on being both in that habitat in the park and out in the private land. It's connecting between these blocks of public land. So if we don't keep these connections, we won't have the connections for biodiversity between the public land. We're buffering these parks. So if you have development up to the edge of a park, the impact on the park actually goes into the park. Here we have private land conservation all around these parks, helping to actually maintain the integrity of the park itself. And there's some cases where the private land conservation, like down by Police Outpost Lake or other small parks, where the private land conservation is actually greater than the public land conservation. So you're creating a much bigger, essentially protected area by combining these two. Another example, Highway 3. Critical wildlife corridor, we have issues with wildlife getting across Highway 3 as it gets more developed and more traffic. Really the only option on the Alberta side of the border for connectivity is private land. If we do not keep those lands from becoming highly fragmented with houses and roads, we will not have that connectivity across Highway 3. So I want to show you a really quick video here. Uh, just bear with me. This video is of wildlife on private land and it's in an area that has about six square miles with very little human activity. No public land, it's got a major highway to the north, fairly large highway to the west, but it's a block where the, really there's secure habitat. There's very little human activity. But remember, it's far away from any national or provincial parks and it's on private land. And it's used for grazing. So there's cattle on the landscape, as you can see, that's why I have the cows in here. Now, if you don't know, cougars walk in each other's steps. Watch this. It's very cool. The next cougar goes in the exact same footsteps. So if you think only one cougar is following you, it might be two cougars that are following you. They're not native, but people like them. This bear went to town on the camera, really did a good job chewing on it. <laughs> I call him Buddha bear because he's so big and fat. So what I think is, is fascinating about this is that you'd be hard pressed to find many locations on our public lands that support that kind of biodiversity. Um, pretty much every large mammal that exists in Alberta is actively using this property. 
And that's one location, that, that camera, not multiple locations. And so I think people often don't realize just how critical these private lands in our foothills are for a lot of these crit critters. So now I'm going to try and get back to my other presentation quickly. So what I want to talk about next is a project I'm very excited about. And this is, this is talking now about the, the value of these private lands for water, and specifically water for Lethbridge. So the Old Man Watershed Council, who we have here in the room, which is great, um, says the Old Man Watershed is one of Canada's most highly used and vulnerable watersheds. And if you look at their state of the watershed report, what you see is that a lot of these watersheds along our foothills are either high risk or at moderate risk because they've been so fragmented. And of course, Lethbridge uses a lot of water each day, 53 million liters of drinking water. And interestingly, the city of Lethbridge currently says in their report that a lot of the factors influencing water quality and, and volume are outside of their purview, which is true in terms of being outside their jurisdiction, but I think the city and, and people in Lethbridge can actually become directly engaged in source water protection in a very positive way. And of course, you guys already listened to Kevin Van Teagum and the quote that's on the front of, of the, the Lethbridge um, uh, st State of the Environment Plan, I think what they call it, is that we look to the rivers for our water, but water does not come from the river, water comes to the river. So the lands that the water flows over are critical. So here is Yarrow Creek, and I bet you all of you have probably had molecules of Yarrow Creek in your drinking water. You've probably had molecules of the Crow's Nest River. You've probably had molecules of Olin Creek, uh, who we have people here from Olin Creek today, uh, probably from Mill Creek. Uh, you guys have probably all drank this water in your drinking water. Salt has conservation easements on all of those properties and a lot more. And so we're keeping them from being fragmented by roads and houses and keeping that water clean and fresh. This project I'm very excited about, and I'm sorry this map is a little bit confusing. Red is really high priority, orange is next, and green is low priority in this map. But this map intends to identify areas that we want to keep from being more fragmented. If we keep these areas that are orange and red intact with less roads and less development, it means the water is going to flow off more slowly. It's going to be stored more. It's going to come off more cleanly. It's going to cost Lethbridge less to treat it as your population goes up. It's going to maintain that water supply uh, in, a, in, a better, in a better state and be better for flood and for drought. So this mapping looks at a whole bunch of things from precipitation to slope to vegetation to surficial geology and says which parts of the landscape are, are going to be most important for water. And those four properties I showed you are those four right there, but SALTS also has conservation easements on a whole bunch of properties that are part of this watershed. Another way to look at this is to say, let's roll this up and say which parts of the watershed, the sub-basins, are most important to protect for drinking water down the road. And so this, this just looks at the, the watershed and says, okay, those areas that are dark blue, medium blue, or lighter blue are the areas that are going to continue to provide the most water supply value for people downstream. And so this is a really exciting project because it's going to help organizations like ours and others to focus on those areas that are going to be the biggest bang for our buck for water conservation for everybody downstream. The other thing you'll notice is that the pu public land, which is the green and the orange, a huge amount of those important parts of the watershed are outside of public land. They're on private land. So in conclusion, what I, what I wanted to sort of highlight here today is that we have this enormous wealth of ecological value in our foothills and eastern slopes in Alberta. And it provides value not just for those people living there, but for those people that are downstream or like to recreate there or like to hunt or fish. And I think often people think that we, 
by protecting our parks on public land, have finished the job and that we're done. And I guess what I'm here to say is that there's still a really, really big job to be done to make sure we keep those private lands that are so key also intact. So what, what can you do? Share the message that, that although parks are very, very important, private lands are also critical for conservation. Share the message that I think a lot of people think that, that cattle and ranching are bad. In my view, if we keep the foothills and ranching, long term that is our best option for water and for wildlife. And, we, and I can tell you right now, the ranching community is moving towards a whole model where there's a recognition of the value of healthy grazing and healthy riparian areas. It's actually a better economic model and people are realizing that now. So that transformation is taking place in terms of the, the management going on on ranches. Ask your provincial and federal politicians what they're doing to support private land conservation. Because often there is so much emphasis on parks. So, and, and in Alberta here, we're very lucky. This provincial government does support the work we do directly, which has made an enormous difference to our ability to get this work done uh, in the last five years. And then I guess lastly, because I'm here in Lethbridge, I'm really excited about starting a conversation with people in Lethbridge and the city of Lethbridge about how can we start to get people to engage in source water protection. You may not live out there, but you drink the water that comes from these foothills. So how do we make sure that we start to actually uh, focus our efforts and contribute to conservation going on in the source waters to conserve you know, your drinking supply long term? Thanks very much. <laughs>